0: Welcome back to the podcast on binding the Bible. This is episode 146, power over versus power under. And in the episode this week, I would like to read for you the entire chapter of Exodus 32, which is the Aaron leading the people into constructing and then worshiping a golden calf, Moses coming down off of the mountain, seeing what the people are doing, engaging Aaron in a conversation and then disciplining the people accordingly based upon their idolatry and what i want to do today is take a look at the lives of both moses and aaron as they embody priests representative not only of the people but also to demonstrate to the people the kind of priests that they are to become in the world and the phrases power under and power over i think most fully embody what moses and aaron are doing in their role as priests throughout the narrative. And this will set us up perfectly, I think, to understand our own relationship with power, how we think about it, how we believe God exercises power, and therefore how we believe we are supposed to exercise power. And so I am excited for this episode. Let's just get right into it. before we get into Exodus 32 I actually want to read another passage that shows up immediately before the giving of the Ten Commandments or the giving of the law and then Exodus 32 um, when we get to that section that's actually something that shows up right in the middle of the Lord giving to Moses the specific ramifications or the specific laws and implications of Of the Ten Commandments and how the people themselves are to be positioned in relationship to God and in relationship to one another so that they can fully embody the laws that the Lord is giving. And so again, Exodus 19 is a passage that I want to read for you, which more or less sets up Israel's relationship to the law and their relationship to the Lord and to the nations. And then Exodus 32 is going to be a little bit of a break in several chapters of the Lord giving Moses explicit instructions about tabernacle building, about priests and their attire, and how they are to go about their service. And I think if we read Exodus 19 first, recognizing that Israel itself is called a kingdom of priests, then it might help us to rationalize and understand why so many explicit instructions are given specifically to priests. And so in Exodus 19, four through eight, here's what we read. And again, this connects, I also believe, the first half of the book of Exodus with the second half, the first half being the tremendous deliverance that the Lord provided for Israel and rescuing them from Egypt. And as we looked at last week, um, Israel itself needing the uh, Egypt's idea of how they define God to be radically re-altered. And um, we're going to take a look at that again this week. So in Exodus 19 verses four through eight, it says this, the Lord is speaking and he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the Lord to the people. Now the people's response to this idea that they will be to the Lord, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation it's interesting that the people respond with all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, time will tell as to whether all that the Lord has spoken, the people will do or not. And so we're not going to read far um, in the narrative of Exodus to get to a section where we see whether the people will do this or whether they won't. In fact, in the flow of Exodus, this is almost the very next actual narrative, Uh, the very little narratives that take place um, in the giving of the law. But we are, the giving of the law itself is broken up by this narrative in Exodus 32. And so I know it's a little long, it's about 35 verses, but I'm going to just read it for you. And if you just listen, that way I can reference back with verses and don't feel like you have to be totally lost. You will at least heard it once um, on this episode. So it starts in Exodus 32 verse 1. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? That they have brought such that you have brought such a great sin upon them. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, Please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Now, I know that was a fairly long narrative, and there are so many things I want to say about this, and I guess I will probably end up saying um, less than I intend today, and then I'll sprinkle more ideas throughout as we we continue to go. But the first thing that I want to do is I, I want to take a look. I want you to just think for a minute about the fact that Israel as a whole is called to be a kingdom of priests. They are to be representatives between God and the nations, and between the nations back to God. And what's fascinating about this narrative is while the people themselves are called to be priests, believe it or not, they find themselves in need of a priest. And this was episode 27 on the podcast, Priests in Need of a Priest, and I spent the majority of my time talking about that. And we looked at Moses and Aaron as two representatives of the kind of priest that Israel might ultimately want – um, and I suggested what kind of priest would you want, and what kind of priest do you believe that God is calling the church to become to and for the world? because in First Peter chapter two, the church, the Christians scattered abroad are in fact to also be a kingdom of priests, and a lot of this podcast has focused explicitly on that all the way back in Genesis chapter two, right on through the through the book of revelation, and we 've touched on it numerous times throughout the podcast. But what I want to do here is I want to just highlight for a second Aaron's role as priest and Moses' role as priest. And I've titled this episode Power Over and Power Under, um, Power Over versus Power Under. And that's a phrase that I picked up from Greg Boyd several years ago. Um, he preaches about this quite a bit, uses this in several books that he has written that I also have read. And it's I've sprinkled it also throughout this podcast. And The gist of it is, as a leader, how does one define power? How does one choose to use power and a position of authority over someone else or for someone else? And I think that this power over, power under concept is a really helpful one. And so let me read for you just a brief uh, section from one of Greg Boyd's books, The Myth of a Christian Religion. I think this is really helpful and of course he's speaking about Jesus who ultimately will embody God's idea of power under but it's constantly in contrast with what people in this world view power as as a power over and so here's the way Boyd describes it the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world comes down to the kind of power they trust The kingdoms of the world place their trust in whatever coercive power they can exercise over others. We can think of this kind of power as the power of the sword. In contrast, the kingdom of God refuses to use coercive power over people, choosing instead to rely exclusively on whatever power it can exercise under people. This is the humble, self-sacrificial, Christ-like love. Exercising power under others is about impacting people's lives by serving them, sacrificing for them, and even being sacrificed by them while refusing to retaliate as Jesus did. We can think of this kind of power as the power of the cross, for the cross is the purest expression of humble, servant-like, self-sacrificial love. While cross power may look weak next to sword power, it is in fact the greatest power in the universe. The power of the cross is the only power that can overcome evil rather than merely suppress it for a while. It's the only power that can transform an enemy into a friend. It's the power that God promises will ultimately transform the world. It's the kind of power the omnipotent God himself relied on when he came in the person of Jesus Christ to overcome evil and redeem all of creation from its grip. Now, those are Boyd's words, and I love them. The power of the sword is a power over um, concept of dominating other individuals, deciding that because you are in a position of authority, that you now have the right simply to impose your will upon people from the outside. This is the idea embodied most fully in Caesar, and this is ultimately what the book of Revelation is attempting to challenge in the lives of Christians is that they do not imagine that God is a God of power over who simply um, coerces or exerts his will over those who are under him such that he forces them and or threatens them into compliance um, on pain of you know, death or, or suffering as a result of their disobedience. Jesus' approach rather was to invite people into the kingdom to compel them, to draw them in by his service of them. In fact, when Jesus spent his last supper with his disciples, if you remember in John chapter 13, Jesus occupied the role of a servant by taking off his clothes, wrapping himself with a towel and stooping to wash his disciples' feet. It is a power under. It's a position that looks at its position of power and decides he's going to serve the people with that position instead of exert rule and authority over them. And so in our narrative from Exodus 32, we see glimpses of what is ultimately coming. And yet I know that it isn't exactly the same as Jesus. Um, we, we know in John 1 that, that, you know, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And there are instances in which Christ's presence in the world supersedes that of Moses, but Moses gives us glimpses in his own time and in his own context of something better that is coming. And in our narrative, what do we see happening? We see Moses himself intercede for the people when the Lord's anger burns hot against them for committing idolatry. And you remember what we looked at last week. If the people are now imagining that God is somehow like Egypt's gods, that would Frustrate that would potentially anger and infuriate the Lord because He's nothing like that, and yet Moses has been spending several days in the Lord's presence. So many days, in fact, that the people get frustrated that He hasn't returned, and it's and this is the main reason why they ask Aaron to make a golden calf for him. But notice what's happening: Moses's presence in the Lord um, Moses's presence with the Lord has so encouraged him and so strengthened him by the kind of character the Lord embodies that when the Lord expresses a true desire and a just desire to destroy the people and to create a new nation out of Moses, Moses steps in the gap and intercedes on behalf of the people. He pleads with the Lord based on the Lord's character in previous um, moments in the narrative, um, mostly from the book of Genesis, that, that the Lord can't do this, that his character is at stake if he does. And Moses puts his own neck on the line as he does later in the narrative when he says, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot my name out of the book of life. You see, Moses, in a position of authority, which someone might come to conclude, Moses is on the top of the mountain with the Lord, speaking to him face to face. If anyone has a right to exercise power over people, it would be Moses. And yet Moses, as a result of being in the presence of the Lord, embodies a power under mindset. He embodies a servant-like mindset. He comes down from the mountain sees the crazy actions of the Israelites led by Aaron and decides that he needs to intervene on their behalf. He needs to intercede on behalf of this wayward people by pleading with the Lord not to destroy them. This is in its entirety a power under mindset. He's here to serve. He's here to self-sacrifice, if necessary, his own status, his own privilege, his own life in order to prevent the Lord from not forgiving these people. But then I want you to look at Aaron. Aaron actually has been appointed as the high priest and several of the instructions given to Moses in the few chapters leading up to chapter 32 describe specifically what Aaron is supposed to do in the way he dresses, in the way he washes himself, in the way he purifies himself for the benefit of being the priest to the people. And yet what does Aaron do? Well, Aaron listens to the people. They request to make a golden calf. They want to worship something. So he gives them some instructions. And when he gets called out on it, what does he say? Oh, Moses, you know, don't let your anger burn hot. Like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Like the people wondered what was going on, right? And, uh, you know, so they, I don't know. He's like, uh, you know, the people came to me and they were like, make us gods who are going to go before us. You know, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Now I want you to think about what Aaron is doing here. Aaron is embodying a power over mentality. He is speaking to Moses as if this entire debacle, this entire going off the rails and worshiping the Lord in a way that is not suitable for the Lord, Aaron is. Not only doesn't embody what Moses does in being willing to sacrifice himself or intercede on behalf of the people, which is precisely what Moses does, but Aaron unashamedly throws the people under the bus. He takes zero responsibility for the sins of the people, even though it was precisely his idea. In fact, it says twice in the, you know, in verse 25, it says when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, right? Which is true. And Aaron is saying this to Moses, but in parentheses, it says for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Um, we, we are given this insight. Um, hey, guess what guys, the priest represents the people. And as the priest goes, so go the people. And as the Lord goes supposedly is so goes the priest. And at the very end of the chapter, verse 35, we're told then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. And so the question is, well, who made the calf, the people or Aaron? And the answer is yes. Why? Because priests are inseparably connected to both God and to the people. And so the question that's on the table, and this is one that I really am challenged to ask more and more the the older I get, but it is who you think God is will determine how you choose to image him, how you choose to represent him as one of his priests. Now, let me read that one more time. Who you think God is will determine how you choose to image him how you choose to represent him as one of his priests. You see, this is Moses versus Aaron. This is power over versus power under. Aaron has now fallen completely prey to this construction of a golden calf who is embodying might, power, and strength. And if Aaron really believes that this is who the Lord is, and he is standing in the place as the Lord's representative, guess what? Aaron's best job as an image bearer and as a priest of that God is to also embody power, might, and strength. And any person who embodies power, might, and strength as their sole characteristics by which they understand their God would never stoop beneath the people To serve them for their own benefit, which is precisely why Aaron doesn't. Aaron has bought into the view that God himself is best represented by a God of strength and power, i.e. power over. Jesus will speak to his own disciples and say that the Gentiles exercise authority over you and they lord that authority over you. But then he turns to his disciples and he says, but it will not be so among you. If you want to look at worldly power, you want to look at worldly authority, it's always in a power over mindset. I'm in charge. I'm the one who makes the rules. All of you people beneath me, your job is to listen to me. And guess what? When things go poorly with the people beneath the leader, what does a power over leader who believes God is embodied by power, strength, and might, what does that leader do? He blames the people. They have gone astray. They have done what's wrong. What do you mean you're calling me out on this? But notice Moses doesn't go to the people primarily. He goes to Aaron because it's Aaron's job to stand in the place of the people. It's Aaron's job to represent the people. And I'm not sure if you picked this up when you were reading um, or when you were listening to me read rather, but I, I, I picked this up because I thought this was kind of significant when Moses and the Lord see and hear what's going on in the mountain. um, Verse seven tells us, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now that's super interesting. I don't know how many times I've read in the book of Exodus that the Lord, your God has gone in and he has rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. But now when the Lord speaks, he says to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. But then several verses later in the narrative, verse 11 to be exact, says Moses implored the Lord his God and said, "O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? So this is really interesting. When the Lord speaks to Moses, he refers to the people as Moses's people whom Moses brought out of the land of Egypt. And when Moses refers to the people in speaking to the Lord, he refers to them as the Lord's people whom the Lord brought out of the land of Egypt. So which is it? Is it the Lord's people or are they Moses' people? And the answer is yes. You see, in this narrative, there is such solidarity and such continuity spoken between the priest and the people that they're spoken of as if they're one. One. And Moses' role as a servant of the Lord is to see his connection with the people as one. So as Moses goes, so go the people. As Moses embodies the faithfulness of the Lord, so potentially the people could embody the faithfulness of the Lord. As the Lord extends his punishment to the people, Moses stays right beside them, right in continuity with them and says, if you're gonna destroy them, destroy me instead so that your name won't be marred among the nations. Moses at every turn maintains this deep solidarity with the people that he is called to represent God to and represent back to God. Aaron, on the other hand, is, is quick as quick <laughs> as anything. I don't even have the illustration in my mind or the metaphor, but Aaron is quick on the draw. Maybe that's one. He's quick on the draw. To distance himself from the people as quickly as he can. And this is a temptation that Israel will face time and again throughout the Old Testament. If they're supposed to be a kingdom of priests representing God to the nations and then representing the nations back to God, you will yet see time and time and time again where Israel is very eager for the Lord to destroy or to wipe out the nations of the world. In fact, Israel doesn't view itself As the reason why the nations have gone astray, they view themselves as more special in the Lord's eyes than the nations and are eager for the Lord to destroy the nations. But what you see with the person of Jesus and here glimpsing, catching a small glimpse of it through Moses, is the fact that Jesus puts himself in total solidarity with the people. Jesus walks the line of of the sinners who need baptized and cleansed from sin. And so he enters into the Jordan River and asks John to baptize him. Jesus takes on the sins and the infirmities of the broken people around him and thus sets them free from those sicknesses and infirmities. Jesus embodies a power under kingdom of the cross type of mentality where he serves and he loves and he guides and he leads by example. Aaron, on the other hand, embodies a power over mentality, which is much like the Pharisees. The Pharisees saw themselves as innocent and righteous in their own dealings. Clearly, the reason why Israel is in the predicament that it's in in the first century is because of the tax collectors and the sinners, which upset them tremendously when they saw Jesus continually meeting and eating with them. This power over versus power under is a question that will capture the hearts of every person who claims to follow God. How does God exercise power? This is a question that Paul picks up a lot on in 1 Corinthians. This is a question that Jesus addresses exhaustively throughout the Gospels. And we see in a front row seat, the power over, embodied in Aaron, versus the power under, embodied in Moses. And depending upon your view of who God is determines which one of these you will embody when you think you are rightly imaging that God. And so let me repeat one more time what I think is kind of the key to this episode here, and that is who you think God is will determine how you choose to image him, how you choose to represent him as one of his priests. And in this narrative, we see Aaron representing God as embodied in the golden calf in the way he serves as a priest. He's the one in authority, he's the one in power, he's the one in might and in strength. And when that God shows up, the only people to blame are the weak, sinful people beneath him. Moses, however, has just come down the mountain from being in the presence of the Lord. His face in later chapters will be radiating the glory of the Lord. And much of that glory we are later told in the new Testament is embodied in the person of Jesus. And it is captured most fully in a power under servant, like kingdom of the cross kind of way. This is what Moses embodies. The Lord has every right to judge the people and to destroy them. And Moses intercedes on their behalf because he doesn't expect these sinful, weak people beneath him to know any better. They were led down this path by a poor leader. And in fact, when Jesus addresses in John chapter 10 and and identifies himself as the good shepherd, it is in direct contrast to the false shepherds that were harassing people in John chapter nine, harassing the man born blind and his parents, thrusting them out of the synagogue because they dared to suggest that Jesus has done something that he shouldn't have done by healing somebody on the Sabbath. Over and over and over, we're confronted with what is our definition of power How do we, who do we think God is? And therefore, what do we believe it looks like to faithfully represent him as his priests? That's the question that I want us to explore over the next several months. I'm going to title the podcast for the next several months, Grinding Down Our Golden Calves, because I believe that the church in this country has erected some golden calves, some things that we believe faithfully represent God in the way we are called to rule the world and the way he chooses to rule the world, which actually create more problems than they solve. And they don't actually embody the Lord in a way that is faithful. And so for us, having the humility to admit that there are times where we might need to grind down these things and get rid of them and move beyond them, and construct something healthier and more in line with the character of Christ in its place. That's what I believe God's calling us to do. And as Christians, this is not easy because we have to relinquish control. We have to give up the ability to think that us influencing everything that takes place is our primary calling. It isn't. Our primary calling is to serve and to draw people in and to humbly, patiently, compassionately and lovingly draw people in to the kingdom not force them not coerce them not threaten them not scare them and not demand that they abide by our way of life or else and so these are the kinds of things that i want us to explore and again we will dip back into exodus 32 numerous more times i'm quite sure in order for us to get this um, the most clear so that's all I have for this week on the podcast. Thanks so much for listening in. Several of you wrote, wrote to me last week and said you, you enjoyed the episode and you're thankful that I'm the Bible is back and I'm thankful too. And I'm really thankful for you and I'm thankful for the chance just to talk about these things freely and for us to work out the implications of them together. So that's all we have for this week. I hope you have a fantastic week and I'll talk to you next time.